morning. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job, Job chapter 8. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 534. As we continue our series in the book of Job this morning, I want to speak today for a few minutes on this subject, putting God on trial. Job chapter 8, and we'll read verse 3 together. Now, I encourage you to keep your Bibles or your scripture journal if you're using that open. As I mentioned to you last week, if you do not keep it open and follow along, you will be lost very quickly this morning uh, in this sermon, okay? Job chapter 8 and verse 3, and this is what the Bible says. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? Ernie Chambers was sick and tired of God's role in causing widespread death, destruction, and terrorization of millions upon millions of the earth's inhabitants. So he sought a legal injunction. And in August 2008, Nebraska Judge Marlon Polk presided over the matter brought before his courtroom that day, the lawsuit of State Senator Ernie Chambers versus God. Chambers, a state senator who served 35 years, actually filed suit against God, seeking an injunction against all of God's wrongdoings. Ultimately, Judge Polk threw out the case because the defendant, God, couldn't be properly served papers because of his unlisted home address. I'm not making this up. Chambers countered by saying the court itself acknowledges the existence of God. A consequence of that acknowledgement is a recognition of God's omniscience. Since God knows everything, God has notice of the lawsuit. And yet, the case was thrown out. Job could sympathize with Ernie Chambers. As we come to this section in the book of Job, we meet Job's second friend, a man by the name of Bildad the Shuhite. He is generally considered the most hurtful and the least comforting of Job's friends. Bildad is a cold intellectual thinker. He is a hard-nosed debater. He sees every issue in black and white and provides himself on a straightforward, no-nonsense approach to life. He is the kind of person whose mind is already made up both on large matters and insignificant matters. He has sat quietly and listened to Job and Eliphaz's conversation that we looked at last week, and now he can't wait to weigh in on Job's situation. 
But after receiving Bildad's words of wisdom, Job, overcome by his pain and the insensitivity of his friends, proclaims his desire to engage in a legal battle with God. In his distorted thinking, Job is charging God with the mismanagement of the universe and in particular mismanagement of Job's life. And in Job's mind, if he could just present his case before the court of heaven, God would see the errors of his ways, the charges against Job would be dropped, and Job's suffering would end. In these chapters that we're going to look at this morning, we see Job's desire to put God on trial and to plead his case with the Almighty. And so the first thing I want us to notice and think about this morning is found in chapter 8, where we see the defense of God's justice. And in this defense of God's justice from Bildad, he begins with an attack in verses 1 through 7. Let's look at those verses. The Bible says, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. It is clear from these first seven verses that Bildad listened to Job's speech in chapters 6 and 7. He had heard Job arguing with Eliphaz, and he had heard Job arguing with God, and it infuriated him that Job would even think about questioning God's justice. And so Bildad begins his counsel to Job in verse 2 with an attack. And he asks Job angrily, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? According to Bildad, Job's words in Job chapter 6 and 7 amounted to nothing but a big wind that blowed wildly and noisily and rashly and purposelessly with damaging results. Job had been pouring out his heart and soul both to his friends and to God. And his friends' assumption of this whole exchange was simply that Job was a windbag. Now you'll notice that Bildad is attacking Job simply because if Job is right and his suffering is innocent suffering, what happened to Job could happen to Bildad. It could happen to Elevaz, it could happen to Zophar, and it could happen to you, and it could happen to me. And as a result, Bildad had no choice but to attack his friend and to defend God's justice. So in verse number three, you'll see that Bildad asks two questions. And these two questions in verse number three strike at the heart of this section of the dialogue. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? 
And the answer to these two questions from Bildad is obviously and emphatically no. God does not pervert justice. Now we need to understand this word that Bildad is using. The word pervert means to twist or bend or to make crooked what is straight and what is right. It can also be used to describe a false weight or to make a path crooked. And what Bildad means and what he is saying with these questions to Job is that God does not allow anyone to suffer who doesn't deserve it. Eliphaz and Bildad operate on a theology, as one writer called it, of cash register justice. Suffering is without exception brought upon those who are guilty of transgression. There is no other reason for pain in our lives. This is Bildad's thinking at this point. God does not pervert justice, Job. Therefore, because you are suffering, you are a sinner. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in pain and calamity. God is not perverse. God is not unjust. So, Job, you're a sinner. Now, in verse number four, Bildad tells Job, you have to look no further for an illustration of this than in the lives of your kids, Job. Look at what verse four says. In verse number four, Bildad tells Job, Job, The reason why your children died is because your children were sinners. How insensitive. How would you like to be in the counseling room with Bildad at this point? Job, your kids got what they deserved. They were sinners and God took them out. And the only problem with this Theology from Bildad is, when you read and study the book of Job, the Bible nowhere says in this book that Job's children did wrong. Then in verses 5 to 7, Bildad insists that it was too late for Job's children, but Job, it's not too late for you. Job, if you'll seek God and if you'll plead with the Almighty for mercy, Job, if you're pure and upright, God will act on your behalf and he'll restore you and he'll give you a great future. And all of the language that Bildad is using in verses 5 through 7 are related back to Job chapter 1. And when Bildad tells Job to seek God, it's the same language that Job uh, used and acted on in chapter 1 when after all of his children got together for their birthday celebrations, Job would seek God and offer sacrifices on their behalf. It was a sense of urgency and desperation. And Bildad is telling Job, be urgent. Be desperate, Job. It's not too late for you. If you'll seek God diligently, if you'll be pure and upright, God will restore your life and your fortunes. Little did Bildad know that his words would become true in Job chapter 42 when the Bible says that God restores Job and gives him greater days than what he had in Job chapter 1. Here's what we need to understand in these verses, friends. Bildad has forgotten the darkness and the depression that has enveloped his suffering friend. And instead of shining light into Job's darkness while he's in the pit, Bildad comes to the pit, he picks up a shovel, and he throws dirt on Job. 
In verses 8 to 10 of chapter 8, we see Bildad's argument. He says, For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? This is the heart of Bildad's argument. He was a traditionalist. He always looked to the past and he always looked to previous generations for wisdom. According to Bildad, Job's position that he is suffering, even though he has done nothing wrong, is contrary to the wisdom of bygone ages. So in verse number 8, Bildad counsels Job to inquire of these bygone ages and to consider what the fathers have searched out. And what Bildad is talking about is the accumulation of wisdom that is collected over time from previous generations. And Bildad tells Job in verse number 9 that the reason this wisdom from the past is so important to his current condition of suffering is because in comparison to the accumulation of wisdom from the fathers, Job is young. And Job doesn't know anything. And Job is so young, his life is like a shadow. He hasn't lived enough of life to gain any wisdom and to know how life really works. And so if Job really wants to understand his suffering and his calamity, he needs to look to the past and to the sages of the past and glean wisdom there. And in verse 10, Bildad argues that if Job would just look to the past, the sages will teach him, and he'll gain understanding about his suffering. Now, now Bildad is building his argument in chapter 8. We've seen uh, his attack in verses 1 through 7. We've seen his argument in verses 8 to 10. And now in verses 11 to 19, he asserts Everything that he's been saying to Job in his life by using three illustrations to describe Job's situation. And all three of these illustrations come from nature to reinforce Bildad's defense of God's justice. And it's highly possible that in these three illustrations, Bildad is gleaning from the wisdom of the past, from the fathers, to illustrate to Job where he has gone wrong. In verses 11 and 12, Bildad uses the papyrus plant. He says that the reeds from the papyrus is taken from common areas in Egypt, these damp, swampy areas with warm climates, Cause these reeds to grow quickly and tall, sometimes eight to ten feet, and they'll flourish in this environment. But Job, as soon as you remove the water, even though they are in full bloom, they will wither and die. And in verse 13, Job apply, Bildad applies this illustration to Job. And he tells Job that all those who forget God, all those who are godless, are like the papyrus plant without water. Their hope is short-lived, and they'll perish, and their life will fade away from you. And Job, you're just like this papyrus plant. You're withering and dying because you're godless. You're a sinner. 
In verses 14 to 15, Bildad uses the illustration of a spider's web. He tells Job that the godless will lose their confidence and all that they trust in for their safety and their security will be like a spider's web. That according to Bildad, Job is trusting in something that is flimsy and insecure, just like if he would lean up against the spider web, the moment he would put all of his weight on the spider's web, he would collapse and fall to the ground. And because Job is godless and because Job is in sin, he's lost his confidence, he's lost his security. What he's leaning on and trusting in will fail him and he'll fall and won't be able to endure. And then in verses 16 to 19, Bildad uses the example of a lush plant whose shoots spread over the garden. The plant has roots that spread out and the roots even split, spread into stones. And these roots cover setbacks in the stones, but yet new shoots will still sprout up in the garden. And Bildad is saying to Job that he's like this plant. He's experienced a setback in his suffering. But if he'll just repent of his sins and turn to God, he'll grow new shoots and he'll prosper and he'll flourish. All of these illustrations and assertions by Bildad sound logical and they sound true. But friends, do you realize none of them apply to Job? Don't you remember what God said about Job to Satan in chapter 1? That there was no one on earth like Job. He was a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. Job didn't forget God. Job didn't have a faulty root system. Bill Dad's counsel is wrong. He's missed it. But he doubles down. And in verses 20 to 22... He applies everything that he has been saying to Job. Look at these verses. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. And in these verses, Bildad is summarizing his theology of retribution to Job. Job, you reap what you sow. Job, God is not unjust. Job, God does not pervert justice. If you're suffering, it's because you're wrong. If you're suffering and in pain, Job, it's because you've sinned. And in verse 20, Bildad reminds Job that God would never reject a blameless man. And so, Job, if you feel rejected by God, it's just simply because you're not blameless. He reminds him in verse 20 that God would never take the hand of evildoers. And Job, if you feel like God's hand is missing from your life, it's because you're in evil. You're sinning. And then in verses 21 and 22, he tells Job, Job, if you'll just confess your sins and repent, God will delight in you again. And he will once again give you joy and laughter in your mouth. You'll know happiness instead of sadness and suffering. And everyone who hates you, everyone who's piling on you, Job, they'll be put to shame. And then he concludes in verse 22 and he says, But Job, if you're a part of the wicked, your life will be no more. God is going to destroy you. 
And with these words and this application, Bildad is reminding Job that God never reverses the principle of retribution. That you reap what you sow. That the wicked are punished and the righteous prosper. And Job, if you were truly righteous, God will bless you again. So what are we to think of this counsel? What are we to do with it? We'll have several applications for us for chapter 8. Here's the first one. It's really simple. Bildad needed the counsel of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clashing cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have and if I deliver up all my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And the simple question we need to ask Bildad and those like Bildad is, where's the love? Bildad is so full of compassion and mercy because he's never used an ounce of it. And just when his friend needed him the most, his words were empty. Don't be like Bildad to your suffering friends. People don't care how much you know about theology until they know you care about them. Why are you so quick to give them a doctoral thesis instead of give them a hug? Bildad needed to remember love. Application number two. Bildad is correct in reminding us of the fact that you and I need wisdom for suffering. For we too must look to the past and learn from the one who embodied wisdom. The one man of wisdom who was also a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The one who was pierced for our transgressions. The one who was crushed for our iniquities. The one through whom his wounds brought you and I peace and healing. And Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19 that we are to look to Christ in our suffering. Because when Christ suffered, Peter says, he continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. And so you and I in our suffering are to look to the past and we are to gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ and think about how he endured his suffering and trusting his life to his Father who judges justly. And in our suffering, we look to Christ and see how to endure and trust in our Heavenly Father who will always judge our situations rightly. Application number three. According to Bildad's theology, God does not pervert justice. Therefore, all suffering leads back to sin. But if Job is suffering and he is blameless, then the justice of God must be questioned. Do you know that this was a dilemma that not only Job faced, 
Christ also faced this same dilemma. In the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 27, the Bible says that those who were standing at the cross ridiculed Jesus as they called on him to save himself if he was truly the Son of God. The chief priest and the elders mocked Jesus by saying if he was the king of Israel, he should come down from the cross immediately and then they would believe in him. And they also mocked his trust in God because God was not delivering his son from the cross. And they're thinking on that day at the foot of the cross, if Jesus was truly the son of God, then he would not be hanging on the cross. How in the world could God let his righteous son suffer? And in their mind, Jesus' suffering was evidence that he was not who he claimed to be. He was not the son of God. And as a result, the cross of Christ became a stumbling block to the Jewish people. But what they didn't realize that day in the midst of innocent suffering is that God was accomplishing His purposes through the innocent suffering of His Son. And you say, what does this have to do with Job? And what does this have to do with me, Pastor? It's simply this. We need to remember that God, in His infinite wisdom, can use innocent suffering to accomplish His purposes even when it doesn't make sense sense to us God can still use innocent suffering when we not only see the defense of God's justice in chapters 9 and 10 we see the dispute concerning God's justice and as we come to chapter 9 we see a man who feels that his only hope is to appeal his situation before the court of heaven and prove his innocence to Almighty God. And if you read chapter 9 in the first part of Job chapter 10 carefully, you'll find the repeated use of legal terminology. And what is happening here is that Job is stating his case before God. Now it's important to remember at this point that Job is still unaware of what took place in heaven in Job chapter 1 and in Job chapter 2. Job still has no knowledge of Satan's schemes and of God's defense of Job's integrity. All Job knows at this point is that he has not sinned against God and he has done everything right. All he knows is that he has lost everything and everyone. He's lost all of his possessions. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his children. He's lost the support of his wife. He's lost his health. He's lost the support of his friends. And all Job knows at this point is God remains silent. He's not yet answered one of Job's questions. So what does he do? Well, look carefully at chapter 9. And we see in the first four verses his dilemma with God. Let's look at these verses. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. Job begins his response 
by acknowledging that some of the things that Bildad said were true. And then notice at the end of verse 2, Job asks the million-dollar question, how can a man be right with God? But what you need to realize in this question is Job is not asking about salvation. He's asking about vindication. Job is saying, how can a man prove his innocence before God? And then notice in verses 3 and 4, very powerful verses, Job declares that he wants to take God to court and that he wants to put God on trial, and he wants to contend and argue and battle with God. But notice what he says in verse 3, that at the same time he wants to meet God in court, Job quickly realizes that God is incomprehensible and that no human could ever contend with him. Job says in verse 4 that God is so incomprehensible, he is wise in heart. And if Job were able to put God on trial and put him on the witness stand, Job would not be able to answer even one of God's thousands of questions that he would ask Job. And so, he's in a dilemma. What is this innocent man to do? He wants God in court, but he knows that it's futile. Well, You'll notice what happens next in verses 4 to 13. He moves from his dilemma and he gives a description of God. And in these verses, Job exalts the attributes and the character of God in rapid-fire succession. Now, many people say that Job breaks out in worship here in verses 4 to 13. But I don't think that's what's happening. I don't think Job is worshiping God for his greatness. I think Job is describing for us an accurate picture of God in his greatness. But he's not worshiping God for this. He is lamenting over God's greatness because he knows that all of these things that he is about to say are true of God. And because they are true, he can never go to court with God. You look and see if you agree with me. In verse 4, Job declares that God is invincible, that he's mighty in strength. That no one can compare with the power of God. And who can harden themselves against God and succeed? Job is saying going up against God is a losing proposition every time. There is no way to defeat the Almighty. His power is vast and He does whatever He pleases. And then notice what happens in verses 5 to 10. Job describes that God is incredible. In verse 5, he says he removes and overturns mountains. In verse 6, he says that he shakes the earth. In verse 7, he says he darkens the sun and the stars. In verse 8, he says that he stretches out the heavens and he tramples the waves of the seas. And in verse 9, he says that he creates the constellations. But now look at verse 10. This is a verse to underline in your Bible. This is the climax of Job's description of God. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. And that is true. 
That is how great God is. And then in verse 11, Job declares that God is invisible. Job couldn't see God. Job couldn't stop God to give him a summons to court. Job could see his works, but he couldn't see God or perceive him. He was invisible to him. In verse 12, Job declares that God is irresistible and unaccountable. That God can't be stopped. God can't be questioned. And God cannot be restrained. He does all his holy will. And then in verse 13, Job declares that God is immense. That there's nothing greater than God. And as a result, God in his anger and his power, he will conquer and defeat all of the forces of evil, including the helpers of Rahab, the female monster of chaos and evil. So here's the question of these verses. How does Job take a God like that to court? How do you argue with a God like that? He's vast beyond all we can think or imagine. So you know what this does? Verses 14 to 31, it leads Job to despair. All of these verses about the character of God give Job a sense of despair. He knows that what he desires in meeting God in court is futile. It'll never happen. And here's what's interesting that takes place in the text. From verses 14 to 31... These verses are consumed with personal pronouns. Job is now talking about his despair. And he's personalizing what he feels and what he thinks in his relationship with God. If you read these verses on your own, take a pen and circle the word I every time you read it in verses 14 to 31. It'll cover the pages of your Bible In verse 14, Job feels hopeless. How could someone ever put a God like this on trial? In verses 14 and 15, Job says he couldn't dispute with God. Even if he could meet God in court, he wondered what he would say. That when God cross-examined him, Job would stumble over his words and his answers. And in his humanity, there's no way that he could overturn God's decision. So the only thing left for him to do is to seek God's mercy. In verses 16 and 17, he says that he can't deal with God, that God is so awesome that if he really did answer Job, Job really believed that God wouldn't even listen to a word that he had to say, that God would continue to crush him under the weight of his suffering. In verses 18 and 19, Job says that he couldn't direct God, that God is so powerful he won't even let Job catch his breath, and that he fills Job with bitterness, and that if it's a contest of strength, well, Job's going to lose because God is mighty, and if it's a matter of justice, who can question God's justice? And then in verses 20 and 21, Job says that he can't defend himself before God. Look at these verses. Though I know I'm in the right My own mouth will condemn me. And though I am blameless, he'll prove me perverse. 
I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. Even if I could talk to him, I'll condemn myself with my own words. But now I want you to see the height of his despair. And I think, listen, I think every person in this room will be able to relate to Job's words in verses 22 to 24. They're powerful. You're going to read these and you're going to say, I can't believe this is in my Bible. Look at what he says. It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. And when disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. And the earth is given into the hand of the wicked and he covers the faces of its judges. And if it's not he, who then is it? Do you know what he's saying in these dark verses? He's saying what you and I have wondered in our own hearts and minds before. He was so unraveled in his emotions that he no longer believed that he could count on God to be fair even if he got his day in court with him. In verse 22, do you see what he's saying? He is accusing God of injustice. That God would destroy both the blameless and the wicked. And then in the following verses, Job says that he sees injustice everywhere. He literally says that when disaster strikes through hurricanes and floods and tornadoes and earthquakes, God sits in heaven and he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Job says and accuses God that he feels that the world that he lives in and the universe that he lives in has been handed over to the wicked. And that right is determined wrong and wrong is determined right. And that the world that he lives in has become so wicked, the judges of the world have blindfolds over their eyes so they cannot truly administer justice. And then he says, God, you're so mighty and you're so great. You're over all of this. And if it's not your fault, whose is it? This is where our world is living right now, friends. Can't you see that? It's real. And what Job is saying here about God, let me be clear, is not true. God is in complete control of all that is going on. And he is a just, sovereign God. You know what Job is doing? He's calling for God's resignation. He wants God fired from ruling the universe and ruling his life. So what's he to do? <laughs> He's in complete and utter despair. Well, in verses 27 and 28, you know what he says he'll do? He says he'll put on a happy face. He'll smile and he'll pretend that everything's okay. And the only problem with that is he can't deceive God. God will see right through his game. So what is he to do? Well, in verses 29 to 31, he says that he can't deter God's justice, that even if he were to wash himself completely in snow, even if he were to cleanse himself from head to foot with lye soap, God would still pronounce him guilty and in sin and throw him in a 
pit and even his clothes would not want to be on his body. What are we to think of these verses? Well, Job feels that every aspect of God's being is against him. That God has withdrawn from him. That Job is miserable and alone. That no one understands him. There's no one to sympathize with him. And he is in total, utter despair. Which leads to his desperation before God in chapter 10. Do you know what chapter 10 is? It's a replay of chapter 3. This chapter is as dark as chapter 3. One commentator says it serves as a reminder that the sick room is no place to argue theology. He's in dark despair and depression. And in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 10, he says that he will speak to God in the bitterness of his soul. He says, I loathe my life. I will grieve free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Read the charges that you have against me, God. And then in verse 7, do you know what he says? Look at verse 7. Although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand. Job says to God, he actually says this to God. God, I know that you know I'm innocent. And yet, you won't deliver me. And then in verses 8 to 12, he describes a fascinating account of how God created him and formed him in his mother's womb. And after describing that in verses 12 to 13 in great detail, Job says, God, the only reason you created me was so you could crush me and destroy me. Look at verses 12 and 13. You've granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart, and I know that this was your purpose. And Job's saying to God, God, all along, you had a hidden secret plan in your heart for my life to cause me all of this pain and suffering. Why did you create me only to crush me? And then in verses 18 to 22, Job ends his despair and depression the way he ended chapter 3. God, why did you let me be born? And live? Why couldn't I have been a stillborn child? My life is nothing but darkness. How are we to think about this? Well, these next few minutes are really important. I've tried to be very strategic in how I'm trying to apply and help us think about these texts. So stay with me. It's hard to follow Job. I understand that. You're doing great, so I encourage you. Hang in there. One thing is certain from chapters 9 and 10. These chapters reveal the impact that prolonged suffering can have on the sufferer's perspective. Unrelenting suffering can wear us down. 
And when we're worn down under the weight of unrelenting suffering, it causes us to develop wrong views about God, which then lead to wrong views about ourselves, which then lead to wrong views about our circumstances. Job needed to hold on to what he knew to be true about God and not allow his pain to cloud his perspective. You know it and I know it. We've read the first two chapters. God was not against Job. And yet Job was convinced that God was his enemy. And if you're not careful in your suffering, you will convince yourself that God is your enemy too. Application number two. All of us in this room can probably relate to Job in these chapters in one way or another. How many times have we told ourselves God isn't fair? How many times have we told ourselves that God isn't just? How many times have you posed the popular question, why do bad things happen to good people? Here is the reality, friends. We need to remember that when we say that God isn't fair, what we are really saying is that we don't deserve what we are experiencing and that God owes us better treatment than what we're getting. That somehow you and I are better than we really are. And the problem is not with us. The problem is a deficiency in the character of God. And when you and I assume we are good and we don't deserve to suffer, we totally ignore what the Bible says about every single one of us in Romans chapter 3, that there is no one who does good, no, not one. What makes you think that you are somehow better and wiser than God to determine what you should experience in your life. Application number three. If God were to give you an explanation for your suffering, do you really believe this morning that you could comprehend his explanation? Do you really think, have you really told yourself this morning that you can understand your suffering the way the incomprehensible God understands your suffering? Friends, I would remind all of us this morning that in our suffering, we don't need answers to our whys. We need a revelation of the one who is sovereign over our suffering. Our suffering should always point us to the character of Almighty God. You are fooling yourself if you think you can understand the explanation from God to your wise. It's like putting this baby grand piano in your mind. Can't happen. Number four. You okay? It got really somber. You all right? 
Number four, Job's struggle was really between what he, need to be, what he knew to be true about God's character and the experiences of his life. He could not marry what he knew to be true about God and what was happening in his life. And it is a reminder to all of us that instead of viewing God and his actions through the lens of our circumstances, we need to view him and his actions through the lens of his word. Not our circumstances, but his word. That's why all of these categories of suffering that I mentioned to you last week are so important. It will shine light on God's word about our affliction. Application number four. It may be five. I'm not sure. I've lost count. It's five. Somebody says it's five. It's five. Application five. Job may be wrong in his perception of God in his accusations, but one thing remains clear. Listen, this was worth getting out of bed and coming to church this morning. In all of his words, Job never once denied the existence of God. In all of his words, Job never once stopped talking with God. And even though he doesn't understand what is happening to him at this moment, Job has not lost sight of the fact that God is the one with whom he must deal. And what was true for Job is true for you, and it's true for me. And that's why Christopher Ash says, this is what it means to be a worshiper, to bow down before the one who alone is God. Job desperately longs to meet this terrifying, mysterious God, the God he does not understand, and yet the God he needs and the God he loves. And this is true worship revealed through Job's suffering. Have you forgotten the fact and then in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your affliction, in the midst of your whys, that God is the one with whom you must deal, then in your suffering, your suffering must drive you to your Creator. Your suffering must drive you to worship. Well, we've seen the defense of His justice and the dispute concerning His Justice, and now we end with the best part, the desire surrounding God's justice. Would you look back to chapter 9, verses 32 to 35? In the midst of all of this depression and despair and darkness, Job says this about God. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us. Who might lay his hand on us both? Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. And here is the solution to Job's dilemma with God. God is so vast. 
God is so great. God is so glorious. Job can't take him to court. So what does he need? He needs an arbitrator. One who could take one hand and lay it on God. And one who could take the other hand and lay it on Job. And have Job and God meet together. And this language is powerful for how the mediator determines the date of the trial and how the mediator brings the two parties together in the midst of the trial. And Job longs in these verses. He longs for a mediator to appear between him and God. Do you notice what he says at the end of this passage? He couldn't find one. And so now he prays that God would just remove his rod of affliction from him and let him pass on. Remember, Job isn't at full maturity yet. That doesn't happen until chapter 19 when he talks about his Redeemer. But I want you to know this morning that what Job was desiring and what Job was longing for is what the New Testament says happened when God sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the glory and splendor of heaven to come to earth. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5-6. through 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And Paul tells us that when God sent his only son Jesus into the world, that Jesus became one of us and Jesus dwelt among us so that it might be possible for him to be the mediator between us and God. And since Jesus was not only fully man, But fully God, only Jesus could be the one mediator between God and man. Only Jesus, being fully God, could put his hand on God. And only Jesus, being fully man, could put his hand on you and me. And the Bible says that that is exactly what Jesus did. I want you to know this morning, friends, that Jesus is the answer to your suffering And Jesus is the answer to your salvation. For there on the cross, when Jesus spread out his arms and his hands and his feet were nailed to those pieces of wood, the justice of God was on full display as God poured his wrath for your sin upon his son. And there on that cross, on those two pieces of wood, not only was the justice of God fully displayed, the justifier of God was fully displayed. That the Lord Jesus Christ took the full justice of God for your sin and my sin upon himself. The innocent one suffered so that the guilty could be free. And he received God's justice and he became the one justifier so that in your suffering and in your salvation, when you die, you can stand before the holy, glorious throne of God right in Jesus Christ. Justice and the justifier meeting together in your life. Jesus is the answer to your suffering. Jesus is the answer to your sin. And Job 
point you to your mediator. Let's pray.